Good morning. My first name basis, I like. Was that you, Rick? Well done. My name's Josh. I'm on the teaching team. I lead students as well. I get to teach from time to time. And I get to unpack this great little succinct message here in the book of Acts. If you are new to us, if this is your first Sunday or you're fairly new, we've been studying through Acts for months and months now. Acts is essentially the start of Christianity. Jesus kicks it off with, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. So that's the outline of the book, if we look at his book. And we are in the uttermost ends of the earth at this point, in the middle of what are Paul's missionary journeys. So Paul just finished his first missionary journey. We're going to look at this passage, which is the start of his second missionary journey. He has one more, and then he heads off to Rome. So we're right in the middle of Paul taking the gospel to where it hasn't been taken yet. Um, as I was studying for this, uh, I knew I was going to teach this in advance. I've been just reading lots of stuff. I read one blog on missionaries. Any idea on the number one reason missionaries leave the mission field? Top reason. So we got people in Iraq. We've got, we support a lot of people in Turkey. Any, any thoughts? You can shout out if you want. Don't be bashful. Finance is one. Burnout. What's that? Well done. Link letter said, other missionaries. And that's exactly right. The number one reason missionaries leave the missionary field is they get into fights with the other Christians that they're on the mission with. That's just ironic. That's kind of beautiful. If you're a non-Christian, here's what I tell you. The Bible is beautiful, and it doesn't hide our flaws and our warts. It tells it like it is. We're not trying to church it up and be something we're not. The Bible is very clear that we are sinful people. That same blog gave a little equation that I think is helpful. Here's the problem. You got sinful people, missionaries, sinful colleagues, other missionaries, plus sinful people they're trying to reach equals lots of sinful people and potential <laughs> for conflict. That's the issue, and that's what we see here, is this is the first kind of missionary conflict amongst Christians. We've seen them conflict with the Roman Empire. They go out, and they're opposed by the Roman Empire. We've seen them conflict with the Jewish non-believing sect who wants to keep the Jewish faith what it was prior to Jesus. We see them conflict, and now we're going to see the dream team, Paul and Barnabas, conflict. It's just interesting. And it's true, and that's why it's in the Bible. For my big idea for this message, I just stole a quote from one of my favorite authors. He's out in San Diego, pastors of church, Larry Osborne. He says this, God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. It's his way of saying we're all messed up. God's using us messed up people to help other messed up people meet the one person who was never messed up, Jesus. That's what we're doing. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. That's the, the theme and the flavoring of this whole message today. Here's how I want to teach it. I want to do just a quick overview to make sure we get the story. It's a simple story. It's easy to unpack. But then here's what I want to spend the bulk of my time on. I want to look at the story through the perspective of these crooked sticks involved. We're going to look at the story through the eyes of Paul. We're going to look at the story through the eyes of John Mark. Barnabas, Timothy, and this guy Silas. So we're going to just do a quick overview, and then we're going to walk through the people of this story and hopefully leave here encouraged in the truth of Scripture. So before we jump in, let's pray and just ask God to be with us. Father in heaven, we are crooked sticks. I'm a crooked stick, opening up your word to talk to other crooked sticks. So be with us. Let us spot our pride, our haughty eyes, our boastfulness through your word today. Help us spot our weakness and our failures through your word today. Help us spot the ways in which 
we are not living on mission as we should, God. And God, ultimately, let us spot and feel and experience and trust the grace and the sweetness that Jesus offers to us all. We love you. Be with us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. What is this story about? Uh, Arnold just read it, but I just want to kind of walk through. Here's the deal. Verse 36. After some days, first missionary journey over, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul wants to go back, cycle back through the same route they just did and make sure the churches are being strengthened as they should. One missionary team, Paul, Barnabas. Verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, who is also his cousin, which it says later in the Bible. Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark. Okay, seems simple enough, but verse 38. But Paul thought best not to take with him the one who withdrawn in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So John Mark was on the prior missionary journey, and he bowed out early. Verse 39, Paul is intense, to say the least. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. The word there is like a combative, combustive. It's not a simple like, oh, let me hear your side. It's they are intensely disagreeing over this John Mark guy. So what happens? They separated from each other. So we have one missionary team, two people. They separate. Now there's two missionary teams and they're going to load up their teams now. Barnabas took Mark with him the quitter in Paul's eyes, and sailed away to Cyprus, his home island. So he kind of goes the southern route and goes back to their island. That's what they do. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. He goes the northern route through modern-day Turkey, a mountainous region, to what is Galatia. That's where we get the book of Galatians. So we get one missionary team, two missionary teams, just two people initially. Now there's five total people on these two missionary journeys. Verse 16, Paul takes this other guy named Timothy, who it says there at the end of verse 1, it was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of. He had a good reputation at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul continues his journey. As they went on their way through cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. That's what Seth talked about last week. They made a decree. Here's what you need to do. Uh, Greeks, you don't have to be circumcised, but remain pure sexually. A few other things. They're taking those written statements to these churches. And it ends in verse 5. The churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. One missionary team... There becomes a fight. Who's right? Scripture doesn't really say, but the fact that the church commended in the grace of the Lord, Paul might lean towards Paul was more in favor of the churches, but I don't want to speculate too much. But there's now two missionary teams, five people. God takes a fight between believers, and he divides his mission, and now they can cover more land. God's grace wins out. That's the story. And they take along these new guys. Timothy, Silas had been in the journey before, and the churches are strengthened. That's the story. Here's where I want to spend the bulk of my time, though. In seminary, my uh, hermeneutics, that's how you study scripture, professor has a quote that he goes back to a lot, and it's from an African proverb. It says this, Until lions have their historians, the hunter will always be the hero of the story. That's just clever. Tell me about America. Well, it depends on who you ask. 
If you ask a modern-day white person, they'd have a perspective of America. If you ask an African that was brought over here against their will, they would have a certain perspective. If you brought a black person growing up in the civil rights era, they'd have a perspective. In this story, God is the one telling the story, and we see these five characters kind of intermingle, fight, spread, uh, spread out. Who's the right perspective? I'd say they all provide a little perspective to us. So that's what I want to do, is just look through each character, Paul, John, Mark, Barnabas, Timothy, and Silas, and just say, what can we learn from each of these folks through their dealings in this passage? So the first one we're going to look at is Paul. What can we learn from Paul? And here's kind of the thing that I've picked up from him in this passage. Missionary zeal, and that's a huge word with way too many syllables, methodological pride don't have to coexist. In simpler terms, you can be passionate about reaching people for Jesus and the way in which you go about reaching people, you don't have to be boastful about when looking at other folks doing the same thing. Very real. Gateway Church doesn't have to look at Mission Church and look down our eyes at them. That's what we see in Paul. Is he is the most zealous guy in the Bible probably. And yet his pride seems to never come up as he's dealing with other people. It's just interesting. How would Paul view his mission. So this was Paul's kind of zeal. In Romans 15, he says this, this is my ambition. This is my life ambition, to preach Christ where he's not been preached yet, lest I lay on another man's foundation. Meaning, I want to go where no one has gone before. Give me the map of the Mediterranean. Where is the gospel not reached yet? That's where I'm going. That's Paul's mission. That's his heartbeat. That's what drives him in the morning. That's what he's about. How do we see it play out in this passage? If you look at verse 36, we see it right out of the bat. It says, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. Let's go back. Let's go. You got your water break, Barnabas. Let's go. We're going back to every city we just went to to make sure the gospel is taking root. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Where else do you see this? Go to verse 41. This is after the disagreement. They split. Paul's like, all right, I'm out. And he went through Syria in Cilicia, that's very intense, treacherous area, strengthening those churches. Fast forward down to 16, verse 4. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them those decisions that had been reached by the apostles. Verse 5 says, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Paul is about the gospel being in places where the gospel does not currently exist. And he wants to go back and make, he doesn't just want to drop the gospel one time. He wants the gospel to take root. He wants a local church to be birthed up and then he's gone and he's done with that place because he's got to go where the gospel has not been preached yet. I can see that the, the word strengthen is used a couple times here, but what's interesting in the Greek is it changes. So in chapter 15, it's he strengthened the churches. That word means established, kind of gave birth. And at the end of this passage, 16.5, the churches were strengthened. They were made strong. They were made firm. God, Paul establishes the gospel and cycles back through so that the gospel is strong and firm and the churches there don't need him anymore. That's his mission. And he's so passionate about it. And anybody who's going to be a stumbling block, John Mark, who was a wuss apparently in the last missionary journey, we got to just disregard. I'm gone. I got a mission. So that's Paul's kind of heartbeat. But just for me and my young, arrogant pride, here's what's so interesting. He never talks about these other folks 
as if they're more pathetic than him. He's just on mission. He's doing his thing. And these other guys are rising up and doing missions in their own way. And he's just never belittling to them, which is just hard for me to relate to because so much of my identity is, is in how I'm doing what I'm doing in parenting, in pastoral work. So the way I got to puff myself up is to bring others down. But Paul doesn't do that at all. So much so, they reconcile. John, Mark, Barnabas, Paul, they all reconcile. If you read the New Testament letters, he brings them up, says, welcome Barnabas, good friend, and his cousin, John, Mark, welcome them, greet them, love them, my partners. It's like, what? You just dumped them. He, he's about his mission. And specifically, in a couple passages in the New Testament, I want to go to this one in Philippians. This is what he says. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So he's talking about all the teachers popping up, bringing the gospel. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I might put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I've brought up teachers that you guys would all know that are on TV and writing books to people in kind of moments where I say, I don't like this about them. And I've been rebuked from time to time. And almost every single time that if a person rebukes me and uses the Bible, they quote Paul. And they quote something like this that he said, as long as the gospel's going out, Josh, you need to chill out. It's like, you're using the Bible against me, and you're right, and that stinks, and I can't refute it. <laughs> Paul said, so if I brought up all these teachers that I like to Paul, he'd say, is the gospel being preached? Well, uh, kind of, at the, at the end of the day, is Jesus the answer? Yeah, and get out of here. I got a missionary journey to go on. He says this in the book of Corinthians to the church there. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human ways? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus. So here's what's happening. The churches are saying, I'm a, I'm a Paul guy. I'm an Apollos guy. It'd be like here, you guys starting to pick and choose the teaching. I'm a, I'm a Luke Simmons guy. And then another chunk of you, I, I really like Seth. And then my wife and one other person says, I... I like that Josh guy, though. We'll go start our three-person church. Paul's confronting that in the church. Are you not be being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Only God who gives the growth. Seth is nothing. Josh is nothing. Luke is nothing. It's God using them as he wants. And Paul got that. I mean, that's just fascinating to me. Because I'm a pastor. Everything about my identity is wrapped up in my method of pastoring and church work. So the easiest way to puff myself up is to look at others and say, they're wrong. And Paul never did that. Because he was so focused on the loss and so focused on bringing the mission to the loss, he didn't have time to bicker and to size other people up. As I've studied each of these characters, I kind of just wrote myself a personal note with each of these. Here's my takeaway from Paul. I need to foster a deeper appreciation for people who go to lead participate in other churches and ministries that I personally would never go to. It's just, maybe some of you are like that. But like, gateway isn't the answer. 
for Mesa Gilbert Chandler, Queen Creek. It's a tool in the hands of God being used. And so often I want to say, Gateway's the right. Because convi my conviction, the way we are doing church, I believe in. So did Paul. I, this is how I'm doing it. But his love for the lost overwhelmed all that other pride that might have bubbled up. Paul, we can learn from him. He's a crooked stick who left behind John Mark, maybe in a rude way, but we can learn from him. What can we learn from John Mark? Here's a guy all of us can relate to because he's the guy who failed. What can we learn from this guy? Here's what I wrote. We all need grace for our current missionary failures, not just our personal moral failures. So if, if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for any length of time, here's kind of how I think you start to view sin. Like we'll have a communion moment a little bit and you start to spend moments where you think about your sin. And the sin that I think that pops up to most of our brains are sins of commission. Bad stuff I've done. I looked at pornography this week. I yelled at my kids. I neglected my wife. I did bad stuff. And those are sins. Jesus died for those. But so often it's hard for us to think of sins of omission. Opportunities where you didn't do what you could have or should have done. All the opportunities for love that you left on the table. The Bible says those are sins too. It's not just what you've done bad, it's the good you haven't done or neglected. In John Mark, I love him. Here's why I love him. He put himself out there. Like he could have stayed on the sidelines. And he could have done the Christian thing that I see lots of us doing. Christians, here's what we're best at. Using vague, spiritual, Christian-y words to kind of deflect what we should be doing. So tell me about the Christian life. Oh, it's about bringing glory to God. Just glory. You just, you, you just want to bring glory to the glorious Father who is glorified in heaven. And I want to glorify him right here on earth. I just want glory to be brought upon this glorious, glorious God. You just said nothing. <laughs> what about your marriage? Oh, well, I just want my marriage to be glorified. I want God to be glorified in my marriage. Okay, shush. Let's talk about real stuff. Like, how is glory happening in your life, Christian? Because we can push, push away with great Christian words. The Christian youth in our church have learned this. The Jesus glory answers. They know. Adults eat that up. Oh, this kid said glory. I... This kid said, Jesus, I slapped those kids. I, you're not saying anything. What does that mean? Here's what John Mark did. He put himself out. He, he, might, he was scared, and he went on the first missionary journey. Put himself out there. I'm going to try this. Wasn't glory and abstract. It was, this is the mission I'm on. I'm going to go with Paul and finish back in Jerusalem. And then he failed. Chapter 13, verse 13 says this about him. Paul and his companions sailed from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them, and returned to Jerusalem. John failed, and his failure was written down for all of time for all of us to know and see and talk about and discuss. But he jumped in the game, he failed, and then here's what I love. He wanted to get back in. Barnabas offered him a hand. Do you want to do this again? Yeah, he got back in. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is not thinking through how to answer the right way. It's jumping in the game, screwing up, 
failing, sins of commission for sure, but also sins of omission. I should have done this. I should have reached out to that neighbor. The spirit was pressing on me. I should have gone here. I should have given this money. I should have done this, but I didn't. And failing and being honest, I'm a failure. I sinned. And then jumping back in the game by God's grace. That's the Christian life. If I ever write a book, that's the book. You just bought it. Three sentences. Get in the game. You're going to fail. Get back in the game. That's Jesus' message to us. You're going to fail. That's why he came. How do I see this at play as a pastor? I work with teens. I see it with parents of teens a lot. So I have little guys. How old are they? Seven, five, three. And they're the greatest. I mean, they're annoying, but they're the greatest. All, but all they want to do is be with dad and mom. Dad, 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 look at this. Dad, 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 look at this. Dad, I just punched my dad, dad. And then somewhere along the line, from what I see in the parents of teens, that stops. And then you get this. For like years and years. Like, that sounds terrible. So you reach the teenage years, what used to be easy in parenting because the kids served up a softball for you to hit out of the park because all they want to do is be around you. You now have a teenager who won't express himself at all or she won't express, and you've got to still love them unconditionally. So parents will say, especially men, will say, well, I'm just going to focus on my work and be a really good provider. And I'm kind of going to be more vague about my spiritual duties over in the parenting realm. So I'm going to work hard, be the best engineer, be the best teacher, work hard. All the while, you've never created any accountability or expectations for you as a father for that very awkward teenager. Like, what if you, like John Mark, got in the game and said, you know what, I'm going to have a good conversation with my daughter every day. None of you do that because you know you'll fail. That's what you need, though. Failure is what brings us back to Jesus. Say, gosh, this is hard. Holy cow. I can't believe this is my kid. There's a passage. My grace is made sufficient in your weakness. Some of us never have to apply that because we never step into areas where we would be weak. Parenting teens, we're all weak. None of us got this figured out. You step into it and you're going to have to experience God's power in your weakness as you step into that moment. The other area I see it is with actually loving your neighbors as you love yourself. The Bible says love your neighbor. That's kind of, it's, it's kind of a big deal in the Bible. We all agree on that? It says it a lot. Christians, here's what we do. Yeah, I just, we over-spiritualize it. I just want to love my neighbor, bring glory to my neighbor's life. <laughs> just love my neighbor. Okay, who's your neighbor? Well, my neighbor is anyone and everyone and everyone and anyone and everyone and any. Okay, who's your neighbor the way you would define it as an American, like the person living next to you. What? Was Jesus talking about that guy? <laughs> really? Tom? With the weeds? <laughs> oh, I, I was going to pray for my neighbors in Turkey that I'll never, <laughs> never meet or have to deal with. I'll pray for them. No, pray for Tom and Brian and Sue and go after them. There's a great book written a few years ago called The Art of Neighboring. Super simple. And his point is simply that. Do you actually love the neighbors that are around you? Draw your house. Draw all the houses that are near you. Do you know the names of the people in your neighborhood? No? Okay, well, step one. Go get some names. 
And we brought him in as a little guest speaker for a mini kind of Q&A. And we asked him, what's the number one thing keeping from Christians in America from loving their neighbor? He said, that's easy. They can't get over the awkwardness of that initial interaction. Like awkwardness is keeping. Because here's what happens. You know that neighbor's name and you've forgotten it. What's your Gosh, I've met. Nobody wants that moment. That's awkward because you shouldn't forget people's names. That's rude. And we all do. Or you've been living next to the same guy for 56 years and you've never once acknowledged him. And you walk over one day, hey, I know you moved in. I think FDR was president. I just want to extend a hand of peace. It's awkward. John Mark was awkward. He got called out. He got written into the Bible. And now we see his failure. Christians, go after your neighbors. Give yourself clear expectations on yourself. And you're going to watch yourself fail and grace will step in. Give yourself clear expectations for parenting that are bigger than you know can happen. I'm going to have a deep, abiding, nightly conversation with my daughter. Oh, gosh, oh, gosh, oh, gosh. God's grace will step in. My grace is sufficient in your weakness. My big takeaway from John Mark, clear expectations will create accountability, but they also create opportunities for our failure in God's grace to bring sweetness to our life. That's what I pick up from John Mark. What about his cousin, Barnabas, what can we learn from Barnabas? So Barnabas is interesting. He's a, a titan of the faith at this point. And now he splits with the other titan of faith. We see it in verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. But Paul thought it not best because he had quit. So Barnabas sides with his cousin, who's a failure, and rejects the counsel of Paul, who is a titan of the faith and the author of most of the New Testament. What can we learn from this guy? I wrote this. Every Christian is on a faith journey of varying degrees of slowness, and encouragement is always going to be needed. Like, we're just slow at this sanctification process. That's the Bible's word for growing to be more like Jesus. We're just slow. There's a pastor I love, Ray Ortland. If you need a deeper understanding of grace, anything he writes or says or does is great. And he has a tagline at his church, gospel plus safety plus time. And if you go to his website and you say, I want to learn more about the, ch the church, it's a one-minute video of him unpacking this phrase. Gospel plus safety plus time. What is a church? It's a place that is preaching the truth of the scriptures, of sin, of God's holiness, of God's wrath, of Jesus' perfect life, death, resurrection. Our faith that needs to be put in Jesus, the gospel is the true doctrine of the Bible. Some churches stop there and they have great doctrinal statements and then they never think about the culture they actually want to create to live into that truth. He says you need safety. It's got to be a safe place for people to wrestle with this. This is why I love youth ministry. Most of our kids come from good homes that you guys have created. Great job. You've taught them truth. You've taught them scripture. You've taught them great things. And now they're in a world where more and more their friends, their friends' parents, the, the media, whatever, is presenting other options do i believe my mom and dad who put their faith in a jewish guy from a few thousand years ago or do i trust all these other things that are being presented here's what a lot of us like because it makes us feel good but it does nothing for the good of the kids we want them to give us the right answers so we pounce on them whenever they say something that's wrong who is jesus i ah, he was a 
Wrong, he was God. Get out. The dude's just wrestling. Like, he's trying to figure it out. Is Christianity the only way? Well, I feel like the other places kind of, you know, I got Mormon friends that are, wrong, get out. So kids get programmed, and now they know. When I'm with mom, dad, or church people, I just got to spit out the right answer, and they'll get off my back. Come in. Who is the only way? Jesus. Great job. Get out of here. Go get your sister. Bring her in here. Christina, who's the only way? Jesus, great. Get out of here. Get your brother, Roman, four years old. Who's the only way? Uh, rather than just unearthing what's there, they're starting to believe stuff and think through what they believe. Adults are the same way. We're all as adults trying to figure out how much we really trust Jesus and the scriptures. We would say, yes, this is the word of God a million times, and then we would live our marriages, live our work lives, spend our money in such a way that says we don't really trust Jesus. And Ray Orland says you need a safe place to interact with this. And the last one is just, duh, you need time. Peter needed time. He screwed up, screwed up, screwed up. Jesus gave him time. Screwed up, screwed up. He screws up. Paul confronts him. Screws up. You need time. You need the truth. You need a safe place. And you need time. You need encouragers. One of my favorite, no, I'll skip this one. I had a quote, but I don't want to do it. Here's where I've seen this play out like, to such a crazy degree in my life, I thought it was an angel. Me and my wife had our first kid, Elijah, and we're in the hospital and we realize we don't know what we're doing. And they're going to give us this kid in like six hours to drive away with in a car seat that we've never actually used or clicked in. And we're sitting there thinking, we want to take all these labor and delivery nurses home with us. <laughs> there was one in particular, Maureen, that we like talked and said, do you think she was an angel? Like, we're grown men and women who got our stuff figured out. And we're like questioning, was this person an angel? Because of how much she was encouraging us in the midst of us just totally not knowing what we're doing. She says, you got this, you got this. No, I don't got this, you got this. My takeaway from Barnabas is simply this. Gospel-rooted encouragers, and I'll make up a word, and bring alongers are a precious and rare treat in the church. So much, of, so much of us just want to dismiss people the second they say something wrong or do something wrong. Barnabas said, come on, John Mark, I'll take you with me. What do we learn from Timothy? Mainly, we don't want to be Timothy. He's an adult, has to get circumcised. It's a terrible, <laughs> terrible place to be. Living as a missionary will require intentional and often painful sacrifice. What's the deal with the circumcision? They are carrying decrees from the church in Jerusalem that says, circumcision not necessary in bold letters for Gentiles. Paul's carrying this. Paul knows circumcision is not necessary for salvation. He helped write this edict, and he's taking it to the churches. If you read in Galatians, it says Paul took Titus on a trip and didn't have Titus circumcised. Yet we read in this passage, he has Timothy circumcised. Paul's taking a letter, says he knows circumcision isn't required. He lets one guy get off the hook, and the other guy he takes in the back room. What's the deal? Titus was a Greek, 100% Greek. Timothy was a Jew because his mother was a Jew. And Paul was heading back into Jewish territory with a man that possibly could be an offense to the Jewish people there, looking like he was kicking off his Jewishness, disregarding his Jewishness. And Paul said... There's one way around this. Let's get you circumcised. Do 
And he's like, that's the way around this? He's like, yeah, let's do this. Missionaries don't get to just live in the freedom of the gospel and do whatever they want. Jesus asked the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? They didn't know the answer because they're busy fighting with earthly answers. And Jesus says, he or she who is a servant of you. So you want to be great? Serve those around you. He says, who's the first in the kingdom of God? He who is a slave of all. We're going to celebrate 4th of July, and we're going to ring our freedom bell. Christians, our freedom bell we put in our back pocket as we head out on mission. And we do whatever it takes to not offend those people with trivial little freedoms that we can hold on to, but we shouldn't for the sake of the gospel. Should we counter with a gospel that's more appealing to people? Absolutely not. Paul went after the church at Galatia. He says, how dare you leave the gospel of faith in Jesus? How dare you? And yet in that same place, he takes a guy who is wounded still from his circumcision so that at front door experience won't be offensive to the Jews there. That's the missionary life. It is often, often painful. Who is your mission field? I wrote down some of mine. Mormon neighbors. I'm kind of crass. I kind of come from crass people. Not very kind of smooth and delightful on the surface. Mormons are all sweet that I've met, and I need to chill out. Not offer them a beer, as Seth said last week. A lot of people I meet are former and current Catholics. And here's what's just interesting about being Catholic. It's hard to let go of that. Like my mom was raised Catholic and she's like, she never wants to fully say, I'm not Catholic anymore. She's like, thinks she's going to be struck dead. So she's like kind of Catholic. So I had one guy ask me a few months ago, should I, should I still do this? He grew up in a Catholic home, got saved. He's like, should I still do this? Well, the question is, do you want to do that still? But the missionary question is, when you're with family and you don't do this, what's going to happen? If it's going to cause like a big fight out of the gate that's not helpful for your missionary movement, then do this. You're a missionary now. You're not a free American. You're an enslaved Christian to the mission field God's put you on. Who else? Young families. Those of you who want to serve us young families, we're the most annoying group in this room. I get it. Are we, we got kids that... That's my wife laughing. <laughs> our schedules are annoying. We got to put our kid down for a nap. We're so high maintenance. I get it. If you want to serve us, well, you, got, you can come between 316 <laughs> and 319. But 319 is cutting a little close. So, because, you know, I got this nap and this nap and I nurse it this time. If you want to serve young families, you put your freedoms away and you fit into their schedule. One of the best missionary subgroups in this church is the older retired folks they are inviting people at like crazy rates it's insane and here's the missionary thing they're having to work through a lot of their friends don't like the music because it's loud or <laughs> loud to them and they're thinking through how do i come in and invite people in to hear the gospel and i love that our older folks are wrestling with that that's what paul would have done okay what's they love this place how do, I, how do I reach people? They're thinking through the people they're actually trying to reach. Here's the big one. My social media followers. I'm an American. I can do what I want. Sure. But you're a Christian. Knock it off. 
your political points, your subtle jabs, all this stuff that you're posting and reposting and lifting up as utmost priority, what's it doing for you as a follower of Jesus in the digital world? Should you circumcise some of that, cut it off, and be done so that the Christianity you present is not offensive right out of the gate? The answer is yes. You're a missionary now. Your coworkers. I remember when I was a teacher, I, I'm kind of shy and like to be alone. And teaching is the opposite of that. You have 150 kids come through your doors as a high school teacher. And I just want to be alone during lunch and just sit and I turn my life off. And God pressed on me one day like, hey, this ain't about you. So I opened up my door, put on some music, and I presented my classroom as a chance to come in during lunch. And sure enough, the stinking kids came in. <laughs> it's not about me. It's not about you. My takeaway from Timothy, many of us are so focused on our own personal freedoms that we're completely blind into the ways in which we should be slaves of those we're serving. That's Timothy. And the last one, my favorite, the under-the-radar guy. What can we learn from this guy, Silas? You're like, what? There's a guy, Silas? Exactly. He's barely mentioned. He's under the radar. I say this. There is a sweet grace in obscurity. There is just a sweet grace in kind of not being noticed. Now, I get there's a loneliness and an element to that that gets unhealthy. But there's a sweet grace to being on the mission of God without all the applause and all the critique that comes with it. Where do you see Silas? And Silas, Paul chose Silas and departed. And then you don't see his name again in this section. And you see him throughout this second missionary journey, and then he's gone. He doesn't quit. It just Paul goes with a different person. So you get this little glimpse of this guy, and he's only mentioned as the guy after Paul's name. Or caught up in the pronoun we. Paul and Silas or we. Doesn't get credit. Doesn't get the critique. How many championships does LeBron James have? Anybody know? Three. How many times has he gone to the championship game? I think seven. How much praise does LeBron get for his championships? All of it. How much blame does he get for the ones that he lost? All of it. Steve Kerr, how many championships does he have? You're like, who's Steve Kerr? Exactly. He's a white guy that can shoot. He has five championships as a player because he rode with Michael Jordan for a season and then Tim Duncan as a season. He got all the glory, all the praise of living on mission and being on this great team, and nobody could give a flying you-know-what that Steve Kerr was on the team. That's Silas. I love that. Because like I said, I'm fairly kind of like to be alone. My favorite people are my trees in my backyard. I just want to <laughs> just be watering my trees for decades, just out there. This is the good life. And God has put me in a place where I like stand on a stage above you guys. It's weird. And I talk and then people come and say, you changed my life. Well, you were the worst thing that's ever happened to this entire <laughs> universe. My marriage is crumbling and I blame you because you said that one thing six years ago. Way too much credit and way too much blame. Silas is just a name on mission, totally obscure. Fight to be small. The pastor at Redemption Gilbert, Tim Mon, teaches all his young guys, fight to be small. Fight to be small. Fight to be small. His point is, you're going to get way more praise than you deserve, way more blame. You've got to fight to be small. Who are people I think about with this? Parents who stay at home, how obscure to be in the dark, 
nursing or wiping some little kid that doesn't even know your name. <laughs> Obscure, but God's watching. People taking care of their elderly family members. How obscure to be taking care of someone who has dementia who doesn't even remember who you are. God's watching. Men and women who are in very average jobs but are fighting for joy and contentment. And you show up every day at this job that's not your dream job. God's watching. And here's a big one in this church. Older folks who are retired who once held prominent positions with influence and they come here and they're just another gray-haired. Like... We have no idea the success stories in this room. Enjoy the sweet obscurity of not being the one that gets the credit or the blame anymore. Just being a part of the mission. Serving kids, serve with guest services, and let God be the judge that's watching you. There's a sweetness there that I want. Being a part of the mission of God without the weight of the applause or critique is just a sweet place to be. That's what we see with those stories. Those are crooked sticks that God is using to draw straight lines. How do I want to end this? Here's my question. I ended with at the end. What can we learn from Jesus in this? I'd say this. Jesus takes broken sticks and makes straight lines. He took a fight between Paul and Barnabas and doubled the mission of God. Whatever disagreement. I talked to a former missionary who said, oh, that message is so sweet. We left the mission field because of a disagreement. How sweet to know that God is going to take those disagreements and work them for his good and his glory. But more than that, as we look at these characters, we look at flawed people who haven't measured up like you and me. Tim Keller has this, a line that is just very helpful when you're thinking about reading the Bible. He says this, Jesus is the true and better, fill in the blank with whatever flawed character of the Bible you just looked at. We just looked at Paul. Jesus is the true and better Paul. How? Paul could never say with confidence, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He bailed on John Mark. Jesus is true and better. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If your faith is weak and puny and you're covered in your sin, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul can't say that. Jesus can. That's amazing. Jesus is the true and better John Mark. John Mark bailed on his mission. Jesus jumped headfirst into his mission. In the book of Luke, it says, Jesus looked towards Jerusalem and it was like his eyes were on fire as he went towards his final destination, death on the cross, until his last words were, it is finished. He didn't bail. Jesus is the true and better Barnabas. He doesn't just offer encouragement. The thing we're lacking might be a little bit of encouragement, but that's not the end. We are lacking a heart that actually wants to serve God. Jesus offers us a heart of flesh and takes out our heart of stone. That's what he offers. He's true and better Barnabas. He's not just a cheerleader. He's a heart transplanter. He gives us a new heart to do what we should do. He's the true and better Timothy. He doesn't just cross through a different culture, but a culture that wants to kill him and rebuke him every turn. Timothy just had to get circumcised. Jesus had to step out of heavenly glory and put on this finite flesh for us. When's the last time we stepped down and did something below us for anyone else? Jesus stepped down joyfully for us, Philippians says. Jesus is the true and better Silas. He steps into obscurity. It says of him, Jesus the kid from Nazareth, Joseph's kid, he steps down and he gets obscured. The king of kings gets mocked and laughed at like he's nothing. 
He doesn't just do it arbitrarily. He does it for a season because that's what the kings of Israel had never done. Step down into a servant's role and he does it joyfully and willfully. And now the Bible says he's the name that is above every name. And one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is better than any crooked stick you'll read in this Bible or any crooked stick you'll meet in this church. He is better. Amen. Amen. Let's pray on that. God, no matter what age, we're crooked. My sweet boys are crooked. I'm crooked. And the oldest person in this room is crooked. We may gain some wisdom, some zeal along the way, some encouraging gifts, but at the end of the day, we're crooked. And we need your grace. Thank you that Jesus steps in and writes the story. He's the true and better. Paul, true and better. Barnabas, true and better. Timothy, true and better. John Mark, he's just better. And thank you that his mission will continue and you will continue to use us broken, crooked sticks to help bring your gospel to other broken, crooked sticks. Lord, we love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.